0: Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, The the reason I'm laughing is um, we had to get into the studio extremely early this morning to record this podcast because my days are filled in a recording studio across town recording the audio version of my book and Jack Butler, uh, my emuensis here, we ran into some terrible, terrible technological problems that uh, have him freaking out in in sort of white-knuckled um, across the desk, um, and we're running out of time, so hopefully things will work now. Um, the, we got new dilithium crystals in there, and um, I'm giving her all she's got, Hampton. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so and if, if 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 I sound froggy in my voice, that's because I've been doing this uh, voice recording, the audio version of the Suicide of the West, my book that's coming out, and it's. You know, it's, it's not a great analogy, but it's kind of like childbirth. I did this once before, and I completely forgot how awful a process this is. It's just, it's unbelievably brutal. And this time I have what they call a audiobook director who, like, literally is, um, she's very good and very impressive, but she's, like, you know, making me do almost like, what's your motivation for this sentence kind of stuff? And you don't realize, you know... Talking for eight or six straight hours is really exhausting. When you have to be exacting in how you read, it's just tough. It's it's sort of like you know I've driven cross country with my wife and uh, one dog or another and my kid a bunch of times, and pretty much every time I'm in like South Dakota, I'm like, why the hell are we doing this? You know, it's exhausting. It's stressful, but by the end of it. Like a month later, you're like, that was awesome. We should really do that again. And so anyway, it's just been a rough week. And because of the scheduling issues, we ha- we are guest list this week. And we're going to do, uh, we're going to sort of test drive some basically rank punditry for a little bit. I hope you'll bear with us. We'll see how it goes. Um, I'm going to try not to stress my voice too much because um, I have a lot of talking ahead of me. It was funny. So yesterday in the studio in the during our lunch break, I'm eating some soup because they want you to have warm liquid stuff to keep your voice from going um, bad. And uh, out of nowhere, I hear, "Is that TV's Jonah Goldberg?" <laughs> and it was Brett Bear, oh. who was in there. Of course, I'm I'm looking like I um, I should be asking people for uh, for money on you know under the expressway. And he's there in his crisp shirt and tie, recording his audio book for his Eisenhower book, which comes out in May and sounds like it's going to be really good. And I was like, dude, this is brutal. And he's like, oh, my God. You know, and he says, and, and I talk for a living. <laughs> you know, he's yes. like, I read from, you know, pages for a living and it's just tough. And, like, I had to borrow a T-shirt from somebody yesterday because the button-down shirt I was wearing was rustling too much every time I moved and the mic <sighs> would pick it up. Uh, much more exacting standards than we have here at the Remnant Podcast. I'm not surprised that Brett looked very good when you saw him because I don't. Does he ever
1: not look like that?
0: Doesn't he sleep in 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 suits? I, I've, 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 I don't think like Steve Hayes knows Brett really well, and I'm sure Steve has seen him from their college days looking disheveled or something. But I've never seen it. <laughs> um, it's he's sort of like Brett's sort of like um. That scene in Anchorman where Will Ferrell, you know, Ron Burgundy is sort of drunk and homeless and then he gets the call to be back on TV and he walks into the bathroom and <laughs> instantaneously comes out perfectly coiffed and dressed. Or the scene in The Simpsons that Tom
1: Wolf is in when he gets something on his, on his suit and then he tears off the suit and there's another suit underneath
0: that suit. That's right. You, <laughs> know, you know, Tom Wolfe, his suits are all bespoke and... I think he's the last guy in Western Civilization who uses cloth buttons. What? Yeah, there's some sort of special buttons on his suits that, like, you cannot get off the rack or something like that. So anyway, uh, the exciting news for some is that this is CPAC week. And I will not be attending CPAC. I was not invited to CPAC. So the idea of voluntarily going there and being accosted by the MAGA crowd leaves me cold. Plus, I got to do this studio stuff. And, you know, it's funny, last year, uh, I was talking, to, well, the other morning I was talking to uh, Hugh Hewitt on his radio show, and he was, a, he, even Hugh is sort of concerned with the turn that CPAC is making, because they, they've invited Marion Le Pen to speak. And so it's funny, it reminds me of, you know, last year, Kellyanne Conway had said that it really should be called T pac
1: or it will be called T
0: It will be called T as in Trump pack Um, and she was kind of joking, uh, even though there was more than a little truth to it, even last year. Um, but this year, I think it's it's just the case. It is super trumpy through and through. And for someone like me, I find it fairly dismaying, you know, that they had uh, that they've invited a Le Pen along. Now, in fairness, Marion Le Pen is not Marine Le Pen, her aunt. Nor, and she certainly is not, uh, what's-his-face, the grandfather... um,
1: Eh, do we really care what his name is?
0: The other Le Pen. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but, you know, so my friend uh, Matt Schlapp was getting grief on Twitter the other night about uh, having uh, inviting Le Pen, and Matt, you know, got his hackles up and was telling, I think, the guys from Reagan Battalion who were giving him grief, "Um, you need to do your research. She's a classical liberal, and that was basically, you know, you know, chum in the water for me. And I was like, so I went after him and I was like, really, she's a classical liberal. So she's going to be resigning from the national front then. <laughs> and, um, she, uh, and, and then Matt and I went at it and, um, Matt did something I thought was, uh, there were two things he did that I thought were truly objectionable. One as a personal matter rather than actually defend the decision on the merits or or respond to my uh, pointed criticism, he instead did this thing where he says, you know, the best thing is that we got both of our wives on the Trump train. Now, for those who don't know, my wife is a speechwriter for Nikki Haley, and she loves her job and she loves Nikki, but she's also entirely irrelevant to all of this. And I don't you know, whenever I have to write about Nikki Haley or the UN and stuff, I will always do the full disclosure, just like I used to have to when she worked for Ashcroft. But, you know, her career is her career, and my career is my career. And it felt to me like there was a bit of a veiled, hey, that's a pretty nice job your wife's got there. Be a shame if something happened to it. And, you know, because it's not exactly beyond the realm of comprehension that, Donald Trump or one of his loyalists would say, what the hell is Jonah Goldberg's wife working in this administration for? And I made, uh, off, offline, um, through DMs, I made my, um, concerns known to Matt quite explicitly. And, uh, he denies that there was anything like a threat involved in all of it. And I'll take him at his word. But then again, if, if things turn out badly for her, I will return to this issue vociferously. Um, but then on the merits, you know, uh, I think Matt still rankles at the fact that I was one of the chief voices criticizing CPAC last year for inviting confessed – he's not a pedophile. He's a – what's the word? A pibophile? A a a feebophile, I think it is, right? Someone who um, enjoys, defends, celebrates older men having sex with underage but not necessarily prepubescent children. Um, Very
1: fine ha- hairs to be split on this issue, apparently.
0: But there are hairs. I think that's the key issue, <laughs> and um, uh, and so rather than so the, so Matt's position is, um, and Matt is a forceful advocate and apparatchik of the of CPAC. Uh, Matt's position was when 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 speakers are criticized, both with Milo and now with Le Pen. His position is. Oh, well, CPAC is – the whole point of CPAC is to be an open forum with an exchange of ideas and debate and we have to, you know, allow for uh, the free exchange of of ideas and, and, and issues and we don't all have to agree in lockstep. And as I and a lot of other people pointed out, that's an interesting standard when basically no one who is critical of Trump with the exception of Ben Shapiro is on the agenda. You know, people asked him, you know, was Mitt Romney invited? And Matt sort of glibly just says, "Oh well, we didn't know what state to send his invitation to." Ha ha ha! Um, but there's no Jeff Flake, there's no George Will, uh, there's no Rick Rick Berkheiser, who I'll talk about in a minute. There's just um, one sort of nationalist or or Trumpist after another, and you can't have it both ways. You can't say, "Oh, we just believe in free speech, and we're not one of the we're not like some college campus where we're afraid of open debate." And at the same time, uh, in order to def- you know, to de- in order to defend having um, a representative of the national front of France in, or uh, having Milo um, on the agenda, but then all of a sudden claim that conservatives who have a different point of view than Donald Trump are verboten, you know, which is it? And I think this sort of gets to the thing that I really have a problem with CPAC in general these days. There are a lot of great people at CPAC, a lot of my friends are at CPAC. You know, I've I've said for years and years and years that even though I kinda I d I kinda don't like the Star Trek convention aspect of it, if we didn't have CPAC, it would be necessary to invent it because it's a it's basically an industry convention. And it's a great place for people to make contacts, to network. Um, to share ideas, to promote their stuff. And I don't begrudge anybody for doing all of that. But I do think it's become sort of symbolic. And this is what I was telling Hugh the other day. It's become symbolic of um, what could be called sort of conservatism, Inc. And, and conservatism, Inc., I think, is a hot mess these days. You know, conservatism in many ways is a victim of its own success. The outsized role of Fox News, and I, I'm, I will defend to the death the news, size, news side of Fox News, I think everybody knows that I have my strong opinions about a lot of the nonsense that goes on on the opinion side, but that's the tail that's wagging the dog these days, you know. And they have a panel at CPAC with freaking Jim Hoft, or A.K.A. Gateway pundit, who is essentially, you know, on the loony side of Infowars, and and I just think it's 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 sort of sad, and you know, and so this sort of brings me to this really wonderful essay that's in. The current edition of the print National Review, though you can find it online, and it's by my friend and colleague Rick Brookheiser. And it's, it's an essay on the 10th anniversary of, of Bill Buckley's death. And so Rick basically says the conservative movement's dead. Um, certainly the conservative movement of Bill Buckley is dead. And I'm not sure I go that far, though obviously on a podcast called The Remnant, I'm sympathetic. Um, it's on life support. It's on life support. You know, and, and so f- just to remind people, you know, uh, the remnant is this idea that comes from Albert J. Nock. And, um, but I actually disagree with Nock's argument about how you can't change anything. You can't fix anything. You ha- you just have to sort of speak to this irreducible number of right-thinking people out there. In this big piece I wrote for National Review, maybe we can link it somewhere, maybe on the my on com even. I... Uh, I point out that 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 fatalism is misguided because we live in a democracy and you have to make arguments. You have to persuade people. Politics is supposed to be about persuasion. And I think one of the reasons why conservatism is in the place that it is and one of the main arguments for why we got Donald Trump was this idea that conservatism hadn't accomplished anything in the last 30 years. So we needed to turn our back on conservatism. And that's just not true. You know, until Ronald Reagan started campaigning in 1976... For a return to strict, you know, constitutionalism and 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 working under the uh, original understanding of the Constitution, it was just simply conventional wisdom among Republicans and Democrats that the Constitution was a living, breathing document that had new meaning with every generation. And um, it was sort of in that year or shortly thereafter that the Federalist Society was created, and the Federalist Society has been enormously successful. In moving constitutional law in a healthier direction, and it's funny the the as, as as Rick points out in his piece, you know the probably the single greatest conservative argument for the Trump administration has been the fact that Trump has outsourced judicial appointments to the Federalist Society. I mean, people forget again, as Rick points out, you know that. Okay. So that incredibly strange crashing sound effect you just heard (laughs) was our uh, audio uh, representation of the last 15 minutes because in mid-sentence the thing went kablooey again and this thick cloud of greasy black smoke emerged from the laptop. But we're trying again. And I think what I was saying was about how this irony about how Donald Trump, the best conservative case for his presidency so far, is what he's done with the Supreme Court. And, and his success there has been entirely because he has outsourced all of the judicial appointment stuff to basically the, the Federalist Society and career conservative uh, legal beagles. And I'm all in favor of that. I think that's a great thing. But, you know, this is a guy who, you know, originally when he was asked about this, he thought, you know, it was a smart idea to talk about appointing his sister, his pro-choice liberal sister to the Supreme Court. There's also a guy who talks about how he knows about nuclear weapons because his uncle was a physicist or something. I mean, he, he thinks strangely about things in ways that I don't completely understand. But you know, the the point I, was, I think I was trying to get to—it seems so long ago now, um, even <laughs> though even though it was seconds ago for listeners—is that the the sort of personality cult aspect of the Trump presidency, where people have to make allowances for. His ego, and his his let's just say it, weird personality, um, have caused people to sort of have a you know a fire sale on long established conservative principles. And you know, Rick is a little harsh in this, and I'm sure I have some friends who would object to bits and pieces of it. But I, I did want to read this one paragraph um, from his piece where he says he's talking about this exact phenomenon about how he says one of Trump's abilities which he possesses at the level of genius, is finding and naming the weaknesses of enemies. Low energy Jeb, little Marco, crooked Hillary. I'm sorry, related is his ability to create weaknesses in his supporters. A weak man needs weak supporters. Strong ones might make him feel insecure or differ with him. And so, whether from design or simply because it is the way things work, Trump's conservative admirers, have had to abandon and contradict what they once professed to hold most dear. And then he runs through a list. He says, The most egregious example is the religious right. The religious right is the latest version of an old model of American politics, variously incarnated by Puritans, abolitionists, and Williams Jennings Bryan. It, like its predecessors, has argued that America and individual Americans need to have a godly or at least moral character to survive. Now the religious right adores a thrice-married cad and casual liar. But it is not alone. Historians and psychologists of the martial virtues salute the bone-spurred draft-dodger whose caisson was not catching the clap. Cultural critics who deplored academic fads and slipshot aesthetics explicate a man who has never read a book, not even the ones he has signed. Followers of Harry Jaffa, the most important Lincoln scholar of the last 60 years, rally around a Republican who does not know why the Civil War happened. Straussians, after leaving the cave, find themselves in Mar-a-Lago. Econocons put their money on a serial bankrupt. It's rough, but there's a lot of truth in all of that. And and he's, he's saying all of this in the context of Bill Buckley, who, look, had an adversarial relationship with the Republican Party. Um, he had an adversarial relationship with other conservatives. Um, he actually, you know, this, this, there's this, this impulse now on the right which says that internal disagreements are a sign of weakness. And I've been writing for twenty years about how the conservative conservative movement came to power in part because we were willing to have arguments among ourselves, um, that we question our dogma. You know, there's this reigning cliche out there that conservatism is closed-minded and dogmatic. While liberalism is open-minded and pragmatic, and I've argued, this is what my book, Tyranny Clichés, was all about, that it's really closer to the reverse, that you know, conservatives are constantly debating where our, lo- our dogmatic lines should be drawn. Conservatism is entirely about comfort with contradiction and understanding that all good things have a downside and all bad things have an upside. You know, that, you know, we're constantly talking about where are the trade-offs between liberty and order, between freedom and virtue. That's what fusionism is all about, is this idea of trying to meld together two essentially contradictory concepts and use it as a way to figure out how to think about living in the real world. And instead now, it's just all of this party line stuff. And it creates a climate where, you know, the shouters are the uh, ones driving everything. And uh, you can see it all around us. I mean, so it's funny, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dinesh D'Souza seems to have, at least the the person who handles his Twitter feed, it seems to have lost his mind. And he is tweeting just these reprehensible and idiotic things. And I don't really understand why he's doing it. And But it does seem to be part of a sort of a larger phenomenon. You know, we like to talk a lot about virtue signaling, where people like to wear on their sleeve how enlightened and wonderful they are, but there's this weird thing going on on the right, and I think it also exists on the left, um, which I think you could call vice singling, sort of your willingness to put your thumb in the eye of your opponent and say the most outrageous things just to get a reaction, and I don't, I, I, I don't get the point of it, other than a sort of entirely cynical sort of. Uh, real world version of sort of clickbait strategy that if you just create a stink and stand your ground and defend the indefensible you'll get a lot of attention and i want you know i've been i've done some of that kind of stuff when i was younger and i understand there are times to be provocative but as a as a modus vivendi i find it kind of gross and in, unfathomable and And I think one of the problems that you get at places like CPAC is that it attracts a lot of that kind of stuff. And I'll be very interested to see if, you know, how many people on the podium or on these panels sort of pander to the audience and say terrible things about these kids from Florida just to get a rise and get attention. You know, I mean, Ann Coulter has been doing this shtick for years and she's a lot richer than I am (laughs) um, because it works. But it's not what the conservative movement is supposed to be about. Uh, You know, I always try to tell college kids that it's great to fight political correctness and to be provocative if there's a point to it. But rudeness for its own sake isn't something to be defended and it is certainly not something in the tradition of William F. Buckley who was, as I've always said, the best mannered person I have ever known in my entire life. Jack, have you ever been to CPAC?
1: No, I've never gone. That sort of thing doesn't really appeal to me.
0: On what grounds?
1: Well, I mean, I just, for one, I don't like Crowds or crowded places. I mean, I've already, I already feel like I have a reputation for misanthropy based on what people hear of me on this podcast, and so I'll just, I'll just ride on that and just own it. Yeah, I own it. I'm, I'm a recluse. I I want to avoid people. Why do you think I'm in this studio alone with my boss right now? Uh, Because I told you to. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'd rather be here than at CPAC,
0: though. But so this does raise the issue of these kids, right? And. I got to say, I find all of this, I'm trying to write a column in the minutes I have when I'm not in the studio recording this book, and I'm trying to write about these kids. And it's weird. If you look on Twitter, if you have any problem with these kids driving the debate, the sort of emotional mow mowing you're subjected to, you know, how dare you question these kids? How dare you question, you know, their right to speak? And... I think it's all a really shabby rhetorical ploy because I don't I don't question their right to speak. I question whether or not it is the best way to craft public policy to use the you know, the grieving parents of murdered children and the survivors of a mass slaughter as the unimpeachable voice of sound policy. And you know, it's it's funny there's this there's this, this growing movement to use these kids as an excuse or as an argument for lowering the voting age. I don't want to lower the voting age. I want to raise the voting age. I think, you know, it is, there's a, it's a weird, it's, it's a, it's a weird analog to populism, right, which populism works on the assumption that, that rage is morally and politically legitimate, that rage is authentic and authenticity is what matters more than argument. And this all goes back in a lot of ways to this you know this v- argument that is as old as the Enlightenment that comes out of Romanticism and and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and this idea that your most that the most authentic and real thing in life aren't abstract arguments and reason but emotions and feelings and I just want to stand athwart all of that. You know the idea that you know we had Brian Kaplan on here last week and we were talking all about how you know voters. Our, the average voter is wildly ignorant of how our system works and how politics works. And if, you, if, you, if you've ever looked at the polls of what the general civic knowledge is of the average American, it's almost undeniable. And yet <laughs> the, so, the proposed solution is to enlist millions more, even more ignorant people, um, millions more people who are more driven by feelings and 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 sort of glandular passion, um, that somehow that will fix our politics. And you know, I've I've argued for years and years and years that voting should not be considered. You know, we fetishize voting in this country, and we we seem to think that it should be the gateway drug to civic engagement. And I think that puts it, it puts reason and facts on their head. It should go the other way around voting should be the end result of your civic engagement, not the first, you know, your your first effort to it. It should be coming, it should be at the end of a process where you actually know what you're talking about and you've given things some thought. Um, I remember in the 90s when the internet was first starting up, um, there was this big push for online voting. And this always struck me as insane. I Man, I don't, and I don't care about the, I mean, I care, but you know, my objection isn't about the, the technological problem with it, you know, the way it could be hacked or gamed or manipulated.
1: President McPresident face.
0: Right, exactly. Um, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin wins the election again, um, which I think happened, right? Didn't that happen in, like Czechoslovak- or in the Czech Republic or, or Estonia somewhere? They ha- they tried to do some online voting thing and Putin won. Oh, um, I didn't hear about that. Something like that. I thought it
1: was – I thought, thought Bodie McBoatface won.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, there, was, there, there was that. But – uh the um, where was I? Oh, so online voting. I remember Dick. I reviewed Dick Morris's book Voter dot com, uh, which was awful. Uh, how long has I, he been
1: doing that? That there's just tradition of hack books.
0: Well, it's sort of the scorpion and the frog. You know, I mean, that's who he is. <laughs> um, uh, but so he did this book where he talked about how uh, you know elections and public policy should be plebiscitory, done on the internet, and. You know, the whole argument was sort of like a piñata. You can hit it from any angle and it would bear some reward. But again, my problem isn't that it could be hacked or any of that kind of stuff. My problem is, is the fundamental assumption that our democracy would be enriched if only people who were too lazy to get off their ass and go down to a polling station were allowed to vote, you know. And so now we have absentee ballots. But online voting would be, which I think are a problem, but online vo- voting would basically say that you know that during the commercial break of Jerry Springer you could vote for president and he used
1: would be my neighbor by the way Jerry Springer
0: that's great you know the great the one great lesson of Jerry Springer never pay a hooker by check <laughs> um, but um this and so you know a fun fact i criticized Jerry Springer when he was thinking about he was running he thought about running for senate right for ohio probably yeah and this is back when i was a cnn contributor and i made some disparaging uh, comment about how, you know, uh, the studio audience for Jerry Springer will not add a lot to our democracy or something like that. And he started using it in ads like me saying, oh, the Washington elites are coming after me. You know, they don't want you to vote or have a voice or whatever. Um, But I think voting should be harder. Now, as a political matter, it's almost impossible to argue that Um, Without running into the real-world problem of the history of Jim Crow, and if you start saying that, you know, there should be um, barriers to voting, people think, oh, that's because you're racist and all that. That's nothing – for me personally, this has nothing to do with race. It is entirely a first principle kind of thing to me. I think that in order to vote, you should be able to pass the same test that immigrants take to become citizens – so if you don't know that we have three branches of government, if you don't know what the Supreme Court is supposed to do, if you don't know um, what the Declaration of Independence was, I'm not sure I want you to vote. But the thing is, is that there is this vestigial Marxist assumption that sort of lies beneath a lot of liberal thought, which says that if everyone voted, liberals would win. And that's why we must always push for greater and greater and greater expansions of the franchise. That's why John Lovett and these people on Twitter are talking about lowering the voting age because the assumption is if we just got young people in, young people are passionate, young people are idealistic, and therefore liberals will win. Well, in the context of guns, first of all, I mean, uh, Charlie Cook makes this point, young people don't disagree, don't differ from older people when it comes to the issue of guns. Uh, you know, the same split that exists for 40-year-olds, exists for 18-year-olds. For but moreover, you know, my, my problem with it is it's sort of a kind of power worship. It's this idea that if we could just, and you know, enlist youth into all of this, our side will win. And it's also just empirically untrue. I mean, uh, according to political scientists, if every single person was required to vote, it probably wouldn't change any, you know, it, it wouldn't change elections to any marked degree. It might in like big blue states where you have these concentrations of people in terms of who in the Democratic primary wins something. But at the national level, it really wouldn't change anything. You know, it's it's amazing how people don't think this through. A poll of a thousand people is shockingly accurate for the attitudes of three hundred and ten million people. But somehow people think that an election of a hundred million voters isn't accurate in terms of in terms of representing the attitudes of the country at large, anyway, I'm sort of I'm rambling here, and we're running out of time. There were other things that we wanted to talk about, right, Jack?
1: Yeah. Do you want to do you want to say anything about Russia, about the Ruskies, the Russians, as we're now all calling them these days?
0: Russia, Russia, Russia. Yeah. So I wrote a column earlier this week arguing that I don't, you know, I'm still waiting to hear what Mueller has to say. I'm not a big I, don't have a, I haven't invested a lot in the Russia stuff one way or the other. Uh, it seems to me that there are an enormous number of people who are desperate to win the race to be wrong first.
1: Always a very competitive race.
0: Yes, and it's always live tweeted. <laughs> um, but um, here's my basic theory about what happened with Russia, and I think that it, it, it's everything that we've learned so far tends, tends to confirm it. First of all, I think Paul Manafort is a fundamentally corrupt horrible person who spent his life helping dictators around the world. I think that he will probably go to jail. But his involvement on the Trump campaign has more to do with the fact that Trump had a very hard time getting quality people to work for him. And Manafort, particularly at the time when they were uh, heading to the convention, um, was a master of a legitimate master of sort of working the delegates. And they were afraid that never-Trumpers were going to somehow steal the nomination at the convention, and Manafort was sort of perfectly positioned to take over as campaign manager. And so they hired Manafort, and his Russian corruption stuff, I think, is real. But I don't think that, you know, Donald Trump was a—let me put it this way. I will be very surprised if there's evidence that Donald Trump was openly colluding with the Russians' In order to somehow steal this election, these indictments that came out this week, a lot of it is really shockingly amateur hour stuff. You know, it's it's Jesus and Satan like arm wrestling over the election. No,
1: Hillary and Jesus. Hillary, satanic Hillary. Hillary Well, but I rebuke myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And um, you know, and a bunch of stupid memes on you know photoshopped memes on Twitter and Facebook don't count as a as proof. That the that Trump lost the election because of Russian interference or any of that kind of stuff, and they don't they don't go to towards proving collusion either. So here's what I think happened. I I think Donald Trump thought he was going to lose. I think Donald Trump generally has a man crush on Vladimir Putin, but more specifically, he is long he has a lot of business dealings with Russia. He's been looking to get approval to build this thing in Moscow for a long time. And so he didn't want to say anything bad about Putin on the campaign trail because he didn't want to foreclose business opportunities. And I certainly think Trump is morally capable of having colluded with the Russians, but that's different from actually having done it. You know, he he did say on television in front of an audience that he hoped Russia would do more hacking. To me, you know, that sort of is the, the best single obvious case of collusion, but it was sort of Open collusion—it was sort of like what HGLs would call an open conspiracy. He made it clear that he would like to see Russia do more of this stuff. It wasn't a back channel kind of thing, and and so I think you know the the response to all this is always well, but look how much how desperate he is to kill the Mueller probe. And I think he is desperate to kill the Mueller probe, and I I think it's he's desperate for three reasons. One, I think he's really furious about the Mueller probe. He thinks it's terribly unfair. You know, leave aside the fact that it's his fault there is a Mueller probe because he fired Comey and he said all these things and he talked about how he had tapes and he basically created the predicates that made it impossible not to have some sort of investigation into all of this. But secondly, I think that he he is terrified that Mueller is going to find something else. You know, it's sort of the analogy I always try to work with is, like, imagine if, like, when you're a kid, your parents, you know, search your room and they find something that they you know, that that you're not supposed to have. I don't know, a bag of weed, the head of Alfredo Garcia, whatever, you know. And the natural teenage response is to be furious at how unfair it was that they violated your privacy. And, you know, the the proper parent, the proper parental response to that argument is tough noogies, who cares, right? But you want to sort of pound the table about the unfair process. Um, I think that's how... A big part of what what Trump feels is that, you know, Mueller is going to go find something. I don't know if it's, you know, Steve Bannon says this is all about money laundering. And this is one of the few times I think you can credit Steve Bannon. I don't know if it's Trump personally money laundering or maybe it's the Trump organization or Jared Kushner. But or maybe it's just that he's terrified people are going to find out he's not the, you know, the multibillionaire that he claims he is. But he's afraid for legitimate, historical, political reasons that this will be a fishing expedition and it'll find other stuff that will be either politically or criminally or legally or emotionally um, damaging to him. And he wants to put a stop to it. But that doesn't mean that he colluded. And so I, I, I think the problem is that the left and the, a lot of big chunks of the mainstream media is just so obsessed with this idea that it was unfair for Trump to win, that it must be explained by some evil conspiracy theory, that it has to be, you know, some malevolent forces pulling strings from behind the curtain. And I I don't think that's it. I think that this was just sort of a, you know, a weird black swan event. Trump lost the election by 3 million, 2 million votes, but he pulled out this sort of inside straight on the electoral college with a with, I don't know, 80,000, 100,000 votes in five different counties that, that won the election for him. And, like, I think literally if it had rained in certain parts of Florida or in Michigan or Wisconsin on Election Day, he would have lost. And, but you can't, but there are lots of people who can't, who just cannot get their heads around the idea that what they think was a very bad thing happened for, because just life's weird and weird things happen and so they've invested in the the Mueller probe all of their hopes that this is going to prove that you know the the stonecutters or you know big egg or the russians are behind all of this and and validate all of their freakouts for the last you know 13 months and i just don't think that's going to happen it doesn't mean that Mueller won't find really interesting stuff i just i just very much doubt that he's going to find some smoking gun that proves that trump knowingly colluded with the Russians and that's it also should be pointed out you know the Russians are really bad at this stuff I mean they're good at hacking and we should be furious about what they're doing and I I think it's kind of hilarious that all of these people who are pounding the table talking about how nationalism is the new um, ideology on the right and again wanting to sort of find common cause with Le Pen and and the sort of blood and soil right of Europe Throwing overboard the sort of classical liberal conservatism that distinguished America from from European conservatism for the last two hundred years, so all these avowed nationalists, at the same time, are um totally blasé about the fact that the Russians um, are violating our sovereignty. They're screwing literally with our elections, and it's it's because there's also this and I think it can be explained for a bunch of different reasons. One is because partisanship is actually a stronger motivating passion among a lot of these people than nationalism is. Part of it is also that a lot of them have, you know, they share Donald Trump's man crush on Vladimir Putin, but it's 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 weird. I mean, we were talking about this the other day about all these examples of major wars breaking out about you know, purely symbolic things, you know. I mean, what the Trojan War was about a it was a Love triangle, right? Yeah,
1: basically. Uh, there was the War of Jenkins' Ear. There was apparently a war over a pig in the Pacific Northwest, almost a war over a pig in the Pacific Northwest between Britain and the United States in the mid-19th century. Well, so the
0: Pig War, I know something about, because that was on San Juan Island, where I was married. Oh. And... Is it your fault? <laughs> <laughs> um, and there are signs up about the Pig War. So San Juan Island, which is the, it, uh, is the main island in the San Juan Island chain, and it's where two of my sisters-in-law one who who passed away a few years ago lived and um and it's true a pig wandered across the divide between the british part of the island and the american part of the island and some guy shot it and there was a fight over what the just compensation for it was and it nearly led to another s- serious shooting war between the brits and the americans and you know as i put in the column the other day you know greece and macedonia have nearly gone to 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 you know hammers and tongs against each other because Greece doesn't think any other country should call itself Macedonia because that's their historic patrimony or name or whatever. And yet, in this case, you've got Russia clearly. I mean, every member of the Trump administration except Donald Trump himself says flatly that Trump did meddle in our elections and is continuing to meddle in our elections. And I cannot believe for a moment that if instead of Russia, this were Mexico, you wouldn't have, you know, Hannity every night laying a revolver on his table talking about how this means war. But somehow because it's Russians, it just doesn't matter and no one really cares. And I, I think it's sort of a fascinating hypocrisy. And it, it you know, it sort of reminds me, we were talking about Dinesh earlier. Dinesh wrote, a, I think, a fundamentally f- deeply flawed book called The Enemy at Home, right? Where he he argued, this was not long after 9-11, and he argued that... American conservatives should, in effect, find common cause with Islamist conservatives because we're because American conservatives and Islamist conservatives are all champions of traditional values and all of this, and our common enemy should be sort of Britney Spears and the cultural left in America. And um, I wrote a fairly critical review of the book um, for the Claremont Review of Books. Um, it turned out that mine was the, one of the more friendly reviews to the book and it it, it it did not do very well and it got a lot of heat from Victor Davis Hanson and from others. But one of the points I made in it was that it fundamentally misunderstands the sort of I, – I can't remember exactly how I put it. Basically the the Irish nature of of nationalism and what I mean by that is like – in, a, in your sort of stereotypical Irish family, I think it's true of basically all families, but in your stereotypical Irish family, members of the family can give each other enormous amounts of grief and go hammer and tongs at each other. But if somebody outside the family criticizes one of them, you know, it's go time.
1: <laughs> they can't do that to our pledges. Only we can do that to our pledges.
0: Exactly. That kind of mentality. And if, um, and as I put it in the piece, I was like, you know, look, um, I can't stand Ted Kennedy. But if Al-Qaeda comes and tries to kill Ted Kennedy, you know, I'm not going to cheer, you know, um, <laughs> um, you know that, uh, you know, we're allowed to have these fights internally. Um, it's folly and weird to find common cause with people who are existential or fundamental enemies of our way of life and our government. And so, you know, I may think that Rachel Maddow is insane, but, you know, I'm not going to therefore form an alliance with disciples of Saeed Khutub or, or something like that simply because they're against abortion. And, and yet you have this thing where it comes to Russia where people are basically taking, you know, not necessarily taking Russia's side, but they're like, oh, everyone does this, who cares or whatever. And that's a f- sort of a fine argument to make for some disciple of realpolitik or some sort of, you know, establishmentarian uh, liberal um, or, or isolationist. But these are supposedly nationalists, and they just don't care. And I think it's, it's, it's sort of bizarre. And it's, it's something that, you know, is going to have to be worked out internally before I can take any of these nationalists very seriously. Oh, before I forget, uh, we have to get to our sponsor this week. And it, before, I, before I get to it, I should tell a little story. Last weekend, the fair Jessica and I and our daughter Lucy, and as well as our um, Carolina Swamp Dog... Zoe and our English Springer Spaniel Pippa went out to uh, the Eastern Shore and spent uh, a weekend in this lovely inn that was dog-friendly. And it was also just constantly raining and muddy everywhere. And it was brutal, trying to keep the room clean, trying to keep the dogs dry um, and all the rest. But we had a wonderful time. But it reminded me of how great it is not to rely on hotels for these kind of trips, and that brings me to Tripping.com, our sponsor this week.
1: Great, flawless segue. You
0: like that? You like that? Tripping.com, for those who don't remember or are first-time listeners, is the one-stop shopping website for finding uh, home rentals, both in America and abroad. Um, it's sort of like the uh, it's the Trivago of home rentals, and I'm a huge fan of of renting places. Um, where you can actually relax, where, particularly if they allow dogs, some houses don't, some do, but if they do, you know, it makes it easier, um, not just to have dogs and travel with your dogs, but it also makes it easier to clean them because actual homes tend to have hoses outside that you can use, um, and garages and, and bathtubs that you can use without feeling guilty or terrified that you're going to, you know, get dinged, dinged or fined from the hotel. And so, what tripping.com is, is it aggregates all of the uh, vacation property rental places in one site. With tripping.com, one search lets you filter, compare and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, Tripadvisor, booking.com and more. Don't wonder if you're getting the best deal. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation with tripping.com. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, Head to tripping.com slash dingo today. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash dingo. com slash dingo. All right, so um, we should probably get to the various and sundry portion of, the, um, of this podcast so I can get out of here and, and just destroy my voice even more. Are you watching anything interesting these days?
1: Uh, against your advice, I actually watched uh, The Cloverfield Paradox.
0: Did you disagree with my take?
1: No, it was so bad. Uh, It was kind of sad, though, because the premise of astronauts in space being in a space station and then the Earth disappearing, that's a fascinating uh, premise of something. It Mm -hmm. wasn't that movie. (laughs) No. But some movie, I hope someday, does something better with that idea than than whatever the hell the Cloverfield Paradox did with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there should be like an obscure German word for movies that have a great idea and then screw it up and therefore ruin that idea for a period of time for anyone else to do something good with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am still filled with rage about what they did with the Highlander series. Oh, yeah. because f-
1: I've only seen the first one, but they became aliens after the first one, right?
0: I don't think it was the... F- after the first one it was cuz the the sequel they brought first of all they brought Sean Connery back to life which was a str- strange <laughs> the, indefensible move
1: the egyptian uh japanese uh scotsman that's right
0: um and uh um but that could have and i actually really liked um the the Highlander TV series but then they went back to like making sci-fi movies about it, and it was just that's when the alien stuff came up and it was terrible but i will i do want to plug something I've been watching on Netflix called Altered Carbon, oh. and um, I got to say, it's a little weird. I think it tries It's sort of like the first seasons of Game of Thrones. It tries too hard to incorporate gratuitous nudity and sex stuff into it. Oh, well, um, we do the
1: same thing here.
0: Yeah, but I don't It comes effortlessly to me, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a really cool premise. And um, and it's actually got a pretty good budget. Um, I won't ruin it for people, but basically it's this idea that human beings have basically figured out immortality because every, every human is equipped essentially with a hard drive in the back of their neck. And as long as that's not damaged, you can then implant it in another body. And so there's this whole overlord class, this sort of Eloy class of what they call Methuselah's who, um, have been around for hundreds or thousands of years. And, and the politics of contemporary earth are long forgotten and they're on lots of different planets and it's a pretty good action sci-fi series. And I, I kind of recommend it. I mean, there are people who will watch one episode of it and they will instantly realize it's not for them. And I don't encourage you to keep watching. You know, there's some series that like you, yeah, I'll be like, you know, oh, you got to stick with it. It gets really good. If you like the first episode, stick with it because it stays good. If you don't like the first episode, don't watch anymore. It's sort of like, you ever watch Banshee? No. Banshee was probably the best. Like, if you could go back and tell 12-year-old Jonah that one day there will be this show, it would have, you know, it's sort of like, remember that It Gets Better campaign? Uh-huh. That would be for me. Because <laughs> um, it is... Full of the most gratuitous sex and violence. It basically, it's the first TV show. It's it's no longer on the air. It used to be on, I think, either Cinemax or Stars, um, but you can you can find it out there. It's the first action TV show that has ever that I that I'm aware of that fully incorporated the aesthetics of of mixed martial arts into a storyline. But if you're looking for like something to watch on the treadmill at the gym or something like that, Banshee is awesome. Other uh, various and sundry issues. Um, I highly encourage uh, anyone out there who wants to sort of cut through the noise of the gun debate right now to listen to the special edition of the editor's podcast that they did. Basically, uh, Rich broke format and just did a straight one-on-one interview with Charlie Cook for about an hour. And I don't don't necessarily agree or I have some sort of follow-up questions I would like to ask Charlie about a couple specific things. But in general, I think it was like a legitimate public service. It was uh, incredibly useful. Charlie's very good about confessing his biases and characterizing. You know, he passes all the Turing tests where he characterizes the other side's positions fairly. And it it sort of walks you through um, the actual state of the gun debate both in terms of the, tech- the technological aspects and the security aspects, but also the constitutional aspects and the legal history, and I thought it was really, really well done.
1: And he has such a lovely accent.
0: He does. It's mellifluous, though. Every now and then he says things like "maths" and or "lift." Yeah, and he, and he and his he says "patent" in in you know like he says. I think he calls patents patents or something. I mean, just some of that stuff is just outrageous. And, you know, now that he's going to be an American citizen, he has to stop. But Thanks. in general, it's it's really a great podcast. And other than that, please keep the reviews and comments coming. Uh, we're going to go back to sort of normal format stuff next week, um, I hope. And I'm still toying with this idea of sort of doing maybe maybe not like today's, but a sort of second, shorter Rank punditry version of this podcast once a week, so we do two a week because I think frequency would help sort of uh, continue the growth in listenership and subscribers. Please, if you haven't subscribed at one of your finer podcast platforms, please subscribe and uh, send questions and comments to our email address, which is
1: theremnantpod at gmail dot com, yeah. or to the Twitter robot. At Jonah Remnant.
0: That's right. Oh, and so show notes, like when I I referred to like Rick Procreiser's thing or some of these other things, are going to go up basically on the blog portion of my website, jonagoldberg.com. Easy to remember. That's easy to remember. (laughs) And um, oh, and for all the people who have pre-ordered Suicide of the West, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's flattering, it's important, and it's really encouraging. And if you haven't and you're inclined to do so, please do. This podcast is free. Um, so if you feel like, and so is the G file and all sorts of other things that I do. So if you feel like there's a way to compensate me and my efforts, uh, buying the book would be a great way to do it. And, uh, that's it for this week. So anyway, thank you all to everybody. Thanks for tuning in and, um, I'll be back at you next week. And thank you, Jack.
1: You're welcome.